Hey everybody and welcome back to the Morning Moxie Show. I'm Alicia Sharp, your host, and today we have part two of Andy Stanley's message, Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. Here's Andy. Now, if everything were equal, um, if we were kind of wired to decide what's best for us, this would be really easy. In fact, if that were the case, we'd be pretty much done here. Just tell yourself the truth. I'll see you next time, right? But things aren't equal. And as it turns out, choosing what's best, <laughs> choosing what's best isn't what's natural. Now, naturalists, and you may be a naturalist or materialist, they have an explanation. You may have an explanation for why it's so difficult for us to tell ourselves the truth. Uh, Christians have a different explanation. But everybody pretty much agrees that we come into the world with a, with a natural propensity on selling ourselves what we want to do rather than what we ought to do. And this is not a recent observation. In fact, this is kind of interesting. The uh, 17th, 17th century English philosopher and statesman, Francis Bacon, you probably studied about Francis Bacon in school. He made the following observation. This is a little bit long, but this is from the 17th century. Here's what he said in that 17th century way of writing. He says, the human understanding when it has once adopted an opinion, in other words, once we kind of come to what we wanna do, draws all things else to support and agree with it. In other words, once we've kind of made up our mind what we wanna do, we become a magnet for anything that supports what we've decided we wanna do. And then he says this, and though there be a greater number and weight of instances to be found on the other side, Yet, he says, yet, it, yet these it either neglects or despises or else by some distinction sets aside and rejects. That's just a fancy 17th century way of describing what we call confirmation bias, that we are naturally open or we naturally open ourselves up to anything that confirms what we already think and what we already wanna do. And we instinctively, I love the way he says it, we instinctively set aside or reject anything to the contrary. Again, just think back to your last bad relationship decision. You were warned and it, it wasn't that you wouldn't listen, it was more like you couldn't listen. I mean, think back to that recent bad purchasing decision. It's so clear now, but in the moment, Francis was correct. The human understanding, the human understanding when it has once adopted an opinion, I've already made up my mind, draws everything else or all things else to support and agree with it. And though he says, and though there be, though there be a greater number and weight of instances to be found on the other side. In other words, even though there's plenty of arguments to the contrary, yet these our minds either neglects or despises or else by some distinction sets aside and rejects. That's been going on for a long time. And this is helpful in terms of an observation, but it doesn't really tell us why this is the case, nor does, nor does Francis tell us what to do about it. But almost 2,500 years before Francis Bacon wrote these words, a Judean court advisor turned prophet made a similar observation. But fortunately for us, he added a bit of helpful explanation. And the context for his observation, I think it's both fascinating and instructive. So here's the backstory. Around 600 BC, around 600 BC, Jeremiah, who's the author of the Old Testament book, Jeremiah, um, served as a pretty much a professional coach um, or like a, a, a court advisor to a series of Judean kings whose careers honestly <laughs> would have gone much smoother and whose lives would have lasted much longer had they listened or taken Jeremiah's advice. But of course, the advantage of being a king is that you don't have to take 
anyone's advice. Now, ancient Judah was essentially like the bottom half of what we consider the Holy Land. So that's where this story takes place. Um, Jeremiah actually began his coaching career with young King Jehoiakim. Um, King Jehoiakim was a, a, a pr- pretty much a teenager at the time. And at the time he became king, um, the, Judah was actually paying an annual tribute or a financial tribute to Babylon, who in return would then provide military support and then pretty much allow Judah to run her own affairs. So after three years of paying this tribute, King Jehoiakim decides, you know what, enough of that. I, and he quit making payments. Um, and then worse than that, he changed banks, meaning he declared loyalty to Babylon's arch rival, Egypt. And when Jeremiah, his advisor, heard about Jehoiakim's decision, he begged him, he begged him to reverse course. Um, This wasn't just a bad decision. Uh, This was a dangerous decision as well because the mighty King Nebuchadnezzar was already in a really foul military mood after being defeated by the Egyptian army just a few months earlier. So Jeremiah rightly assumed that Nebuchadnezzar would, well, Nebuchadnezzar would love to find a place to vent his frustration and a vassal state that had just sworn loyalty to his enemy, Egypt, well, Judah would be the perfect target. And not only was Jehoiakim's decision foolish and dangerous, Jeremiah assured him that, well, this decision is actually in direct opposition to God's will for the people and for the nation as well. But Jehoiakim, not impressed, he's the king. Besides, Jehoiakim had long since abandoned the ways of Judaism. He was a merciless tyrant whose sexual appetites led him far outside the moral prohibitions outlined in the Jewish law. So he did what kings do. He just ignored Jeremiah. And sure enough, King Nebuchadnezzar did exactly what Jeremiah predicted he would do. He came looking for his tribute. Nebuchadnezzar and his armies laid siege to the city of Jerusalem for three months. And then his army entered the city, put Jehoiakim in chains and then marched him back to the city of Babylon and added him to his king collection. Now I've mentioned this before, but it's so fascinating. King Nebuchadnezzar collected kings. Some people collect coins, Some people collect baseball cards. King Nebuchadnezzar collected kings. Whenever he conquered a territory, he would capture the king alive, take the king back to Babylon and add him to his king collection. And then on special occasions, when he wanted to show off how powerful he was, he would bring all of these kings out like show and tell and parade them around the courtroom in golden chains. And each king would walk with his hand on the shoulder of the king in front of him because in addition to being chained, King Nebuchadnezzar had all of these kings blinded. Now, back to our story. Uh, Before um, leaving Jerusalem, King Nebuchadnezzar crowned Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin, to be the next king. He was a whopping 18 years old. And then three months later, and I'm gonna skip a bunch of history here. Three months later, Nebuchadnezzar changes his mind. He comes back to Jerusalem and he adds Jehoiachin to his king collection as well, which at this point you're thinking, nobody's probably really anxious to be the next king of Judah, right? But every king needs, uh, every kingdom needs a king. So Nebuchadnezzar appoints Jehoiachin's uncle, Zedekiah, to be the next king of Judah. He was 21 years old. But what Zedekiah didn't know, in fact, what nobody knew is that he would be the last king of Judah because like the kings before him, he would not listen to sound advice. In fact, one of the Jewish historians said this about him. He did evil. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. And he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet. He just wouldn't 
Listen, once his mind was made up, much like most of us, once his mind was made up, he could not hear, he could not hear, neither could he embrace the wise counsel of the prophet. He did exactly, he did exactly what King Jehoiakim had just done. He refused to pay tribute to Babylon. And once again, Jeremiah pleads with Zedekiah to change his mind. This was not gonna end well for the king. It's not gonna end well for his family. It's not gonna end well for the nation. But again, kings will be kings. And when Jeremiah realized Zedekiah wasn't listening, he did something really interesting. He took his message to the streets of Jerusalem, encouraging the citizens. He said to the citizens, Nebuchadnezzar's gonna show up. And when he shows up, the best thing to do is to throw open the gates and allow him into the city. Well, when Zedekiah found out what Jeremiah was doing as he marched through town, you know, warning people and giving people this advice, he had Jeremiah thrown into a dry cistern just to shut him up because he was scaring the children. Actually, he was scaring the entire population. And they should have been scared because sure enough, just as he predicted, again, Nebuchadnezzar himself shows up at the gates of Jerusalem, surrounds the city and waits and waits and waits in an effort to starve the inhabitants into submission. When King Zedekiah realized his mistake, what do you think he did? He went looking for Jeremiah and he begged Jeremiah to ask God to deliver the city. And Jeremiah assured him, King Zedekiah is too late for that. The fate of the city has been sealed. Their only hope was to throw open the gates and beg King Nebuchadnezzar for mercy. But Zedekiah knew there would be no mercy for him or his family. So he snuck out of the city at night with his bodyguard and his children, yet another really bad decision. He was eventually captured and then he was forced to watch as his children were butchered one by one by Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers. And that would be the last thing King Zedekiah would ever see. He was blinded, chained, and marched back to Babylon to join Nebuchadnezzar's king collection. So the next time somebody tells you the Bible is boring, you just tell them the story of King Zedekiah, right? Well, that was Andy Stanley, and you can find that clip on YouTube if you search under Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets, Part 2, The Integrity Question, Andy Stanley. You can also find out more information about him at his website, andystanley.com. I hope that you have a fabulous day today, that you go live the 320 life that God has made you to live, which is one better than you can ever imagine.